All right. Well, let's start off as we typically do, going back and reviewing some of the stuff that we've been looking at in the past. Uh, it's always good to refresh our memories a little bit because I know that I'm not super sharp week to week. So we are still in Mark chapter 1, and uh, up until this point, what has Mark's focus been as far as where he's looking to, um, to, to record Jesus's ministry beginning? Where is he looking at his ministry beginning? Galilee. Yes, ma'am. In Galilee. And so up north, is that what your thumbs up was? Good. All right. He was up north, not down south in the, the Judea area, but up in, in Galilee. We see that in uh, 128, that immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding districts of Galilee. And this week we're going to be picking up in that very next verse, in verse 29. And last week, we also talked about a synagogue. So, what is a synagogue? A synagogue is not a church, it's not a temple, it's not a tabernacle. What is the synagogue? A synagogue. Yes. Amen. Good. So they would go there and they would study the, the Torah. They would study the law and seek to know and understand the law. And again, it wasn't a place of worship. Um, it was a place of study, kind of a mixing between a school and a church. What did you say? Nothing. Okay. I saw your lips move. You said something, right? Um, it also kind of functioned as a, a civil courthouse in some respects. And then... Um, it became the place that people would go to that were engaged in spirituality, right? They were spiritually minded. And so that's where Jesus would go to engage people who were thinking along those lines. That's where later Paul and other apostles would go to engage with people. Um, that was the place to be if you wanted to have an encounter with the Lord. And last week, we were introduced to four disciples. What disciples did we get introduced to last week? leading up to verse 29. Yep, good job. James and John and Andrew and Simon, Peter, or Cephas, right? They were the the four brother fishermen disciples who were uh, in, in partnership with each other. They were business partners with one another. And what was Jesus' purpose in humbling himself in Mark 10.45, that key verse of this book that we're slowly trying to commit to memory? What was Jesus' purpose in humbling himself? Good. For even the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many, right? And... This week in our sermon series, we're starting 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who had no sin to what? To be sin for us, right? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus humbled himself for us, to serve us, so that uh, he could be sin for us and we could be his righteousness. Uh, Also, 2 Corinthians 8.9 says, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, uh, so that through his poverty you might become rich. That's such a 
awesome thought. That's why Jesus came. He came to serve. He came to glorify us, take our sin upon himself, and that through his poverty, we might become rich. That's why he humbled himself. And then when will Jesus establish his kingdom? This was a couple weeks ago we discussed this. When is Jesus going to establish his kingdom? Spiritually, it's already established. All right. Amen. I was just about to ask, when is Jesus going to become our king? But he is already our king, right? Spiritually, it's already established. And physically, we can't go down to the temple, right? I mean, there are several temples around us, but they are not uh, any place where we're going to encounter the king. His kingdom on earth has not yet been established. It will be established uh, in the millennial reign, in Revelation 20, we read about that. Revelation 21, we read about the new heavens and the new earth and how that kingdom reign is going to go on forever. So he has established his kingdom spiritually, physically, that is yet to come. That was a, a key point that Mark introduced a couple weeks ago, and he's going to hit on it throughout the rest of the Gospels and the rest of this Gospel, and the other Gospels also will hit on that, uh, especially Matthew. If you ever go over to Matthew, Matthew 13 and 23 and 25, and uh, he really focuses on what he calls the kingdom of heaven, but uh, same kingdom that Jesus has established in a spiritual sense and will one day physically establish here on earth. Any other thoughts or questions or comments on any of the stuff that we've covered in this class up until this point? Amen. Good. His kingdom is not of this world, right? He does have a kingdom, and it is not yet of this world. Um, Satan is the, the prince of the power of the air. Jeremy and I have been talking this week about Second uh, Corinthians 4, the, the god of this world. And uh, if that is talking about Satan or the Lord and different perspectives on that, and uh, this is definitely Satan's domain for the time being. But... Uh, Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, and he will establish his kingdom here one day and dethrone the, the prince of the power of the air, right? Any other questions or comments? All right, next week we probably will be dipping into chapter 2. We've been in chapter 1 for, this is our eighth week now. We're still in chapter 1, but we're not going to be going at that same pace. Uh, I don't foresee any other chapter that's going to take eight or nine lessons. We're just establishing a foundation, and uh, we will pick it up. In fact, I think by April, we will be into chapter eight, so we won't be going at the, the same pace we've been going, uh, but we're not in a rush. We don't necessarily have an agenda. That's just my proposed outline, so if you have any thoughts or questions, it's no worries. We can slow down and uh, camp on those for a little bit. I would rather see us spend a year in Mark and, and really know it and go through it thoroughly than go through several books in the same amount of time and just kind of touch on them at a surface level. All right, well, let's talk about Simon's mother-in-law. Simon's mother-in-law. We touched on some stuff on her a little bit last week, but uh, let's get in and read verses 29 through 31. Can somebody grab those three verses for us? Mark 1, 29 through 31. Who's got those? Thanks, Andy. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and 
Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. All right. So, uh, we see that Simon is going back to his house with his mother-in-law, right? Once again, that this is Simon's house. He seems like he's fairly well off. Simon Peter having a house, having a successful fishing business, and uh, even hired hands who were at his disposal. Uh, Luke 4.38 actually calls this Simon's home. So they were at Simon's home. And what can we uh, conclude from the fact that Simon had a, a mother-in-law. What does that tell us about Simon? He's married, right? What would it be like to be married to Simon Peter, I wonder? <laughs> uh, not just because of who he is and how outspoken he is, and uh, he just he speaks his mind, right, uh, fairly quickly, but also because of the fact that uh, we know in, in Matthew 8.20 that the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, Right? Uh, the, the birds of the air, they have their, their nests, and the foxes have their dens, but the Son of Man, he has no place to lay his head. And he told Simon, Peter, get up and, and follow me. And immediately he dropped his nets and he followed after the Lord. And so it would be quite unique to be married to, to a disciple, let alone Simon Peter. Um, we also know from First Timothy 5 that um, anybody who... Uh, does not care for their family, especially for those in their household, they have denied the faith and they're worse than an unbeliever. So I don't think that we can assume that Simon just left his wife and said, oh, I'm going to go with Jesus, right? But as we talked about a little bit last week, uh, 1 Corinthians 9.5, that's where Paul's talking and he says, well, do, do I not have the right to take along a, a believing wife with me along with the rest of the apostles just like Cephas is taken along, or he doesn't say that. He says, like, let me read the verse. He says, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? So it seems like he's saying that Cephas took a wife along with him on his journeys, so that she was along with him traveling and, and ministering along his, alongside of him. Um, and being cared for by him, that he was not forsaking his responsibility for his family. We also talked last week about how these four fishermen that we were talking about, they were all from Capernaum. And Matthew, the tax collector, the, uh, one of the other disciples, he's also from Capernaum. And the rest of the disciples, they're also from that region of Galilee, right? I should have put the map back up there again. But as Jerry said, it's up in the north, right? Up in the the Galilee region, right around the, the Sea of Galilee. That's where all the disciples are from, except for Judas Iscariot, the, the fake disciple, right? Um, he was from Jerusalem. And so when they, I told you last week, that was kind of Jesus' home base, Capernaum. That was his hometown. Uh, I think it's, yeah, chapter 2, verse 1 says that they went back to Capernaum, and everybody heard that he was at home. Uh, so they were kind of centered around there. And so I, they... They were back there quite a bit. And so for work, I drive truck, but I just drive truck locally. But I kind of think of them as kind of over-the-road truck drivers, right? They're, they're gone for a little bit. They're out doing their, their thing. They're out ministering. And then they come back to the home base, back to Capernaum. And uh, they're there where 
where their families are from, and they're able to kind of rub shoulders and interact and touch base and then head off on on some other missionary journey type thing out again. Um, So uh, we do see that she lived in Simon's house. And then also we see that the disciples, when they they approach Jesus about her sickness, uh, that she was sick with a fever, and uh, that they went to Jesus to, to heal her. It says, Now Simon's mother-in-law, in verse 30, was laying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. So they knew right where to go. They knew where to look um, for their, their issues to try to encounter uh, a solution to this problem. And I think we mentioned last week just briefly that it's not up until halfway through the book of Mark in, in chapter 8 that the disciples really seem to kind of grasp who Jesus is at, at Peter's uh, confession that Jesus is a Christ, the Son of the living God. But up until then, it doesn't seem like anybody really knows who Jesus is except for the demons. The demons know who Jesus is, and, and they're fearful and, and terrified of him, but everybody else is uh, kind of unaware a little bit. So let's do a, a little bit of a Bible study and see some responses to, uh, to Jesus. Could I get somebody to look up chapter 3, verses 6 and 22? Who's got that in chapter 3? All right, Greg. That's going to be the response from the Jewish leaders. Uh, who can get chapter 6, verses 5 and 6? 6, 5, and 6. Jerry. And then chapter 8. 17 and 18, who's got that one for us? About one of the ladies. Oh. All right, we'll go with Jim. Not a lady. Very manly man. Jim's got 8, 17, and 18. And then 8, 29 through 30. I'll grab that one. All right, so in Mark 3, verses 6 and 22, we see the Jewish leader's response to Jesus. What do those verses say, Greg? Uh, Verse 6, the Pharisees went out and So the Pharisees wanted to destroy him, and the scribes said, well, he just cast out demons by the power of demons. He's a, a son of Beelzebul, right? Not great responses from the scribes and the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders. What about the crowds in uh, 6, 5 through 6? What do they say? Is that it? All right. Well, that's what I have written in my notes, so (laughs) thank you. So yes, he wondered at their unbelief. Even when he was going around and performing miracles and they were witnessing these miracles, they were not believing, right? And then, yeah, Nazareth, right? Capernaum. All right, thank you, Capernaum. And then um, along with that, over in chapter 8, right before Peter's great confession, when Jesus asked, well, who do people say that I am? And he said, well, some say John the Baptist or Elijah or uh, one of the other prophets. 
And so they had some kind of sense that, well, this man is holy, he's set apart, he's, he's a prophet of some sort, but they didn't know that he was the Christ. They didn't know that he was the Messiah, right? And even his disciples had a hard time really embracing this, even in the same chapter. What does verse 17 and 18 say of chapter 8, Jim? <clears throat> All right, and he went on to tell him about uh, his, his miracles that he did, multiplying the loaves and the bread, and uh, he's telling him, you guys have no reason to, to question, you have no reason to worry. Why do you not know that I'm the, the Christ at this point? And then again, it's not until down in verses 28 and 29 and 30 that Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He finally gets it. He realizes it. Um, this is Peter's great confession. <coughs> and up until this point, everybody's kind of, trying to figure out who is this guy and, and what do we do with him, uh, a little bit oblivious. Over in John 6, that's where uh, a bunch of people leave Jesus, and Jesus turns to his disciples and said, well, what about you guys? You guys going to get up and you're going to leave me too? And Peter says, well, Lord, where, where else are we going to go? You have the words of, of life. And that's the, the realization that they're, they're trying to come to throughout this uh, this letter, this gospel, and they're thinking, okay, well, this man, he's different. Uh, yeah, he's, he, at some times they say, well, yes, he's a Messiah. Other times they're like, well, where do we go for, for this bread? And uh, it's just back and forth. And uh, they're, they're on this journey trying to figure out the, the identity and the reality of the fact that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Um, but they still, along that journey, they, they know he's a lot more holy than we are, right? He is, if nothing else, at, at least a prophet. And so that's why they go to Jesus with Peter's mother-in-law, and they say, well, she's sick. We can't do anything about it. Um, who do we know that they can't? Well, let's go to Jesus and uh, see if he can, can help us out with this at all. Um, we see that Jesus actually does something about this. He demonstrates his power over the sickness. He casts out the sickness. He actually rebukes the sickness, um, we don't see um, Mark using his, his common word of authority here, but that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He is exercising his authority over this sickness and showing that he has a power to even cast out um, sickness. In the past, he's cast out demons, right? In this book, we've seen that encounter in 23 to 28, he casts out a demon, but this is the first miracle that Mark records in his gospel. <coughs> Man, Sorry showing that he has authority uh, not only to, um, to cast out demons, but also over sickness as well. Let me grab some water. Um, and the, the sickness, it, it left, right? It left immediately. He didn't have to sit around and, and wait for this sickness to dissipate. He didn't give her uh, some kind of prescription, say, here, take two Tylenol every four to eight hours, uh, but it just immediately left displaying the, the absolute power and authority that he had over the sickness. Um, I mentioned that uh, in Luke, he rebuked the fever. In Luke 4.38, Luke, who was the physician, right? The, the doctor Luke, 
he described this fever as a, a high fever. He adds that to, to his account, that it was a high fever. And um, he said in Luke 4.39, the next verse, that he rebuked the fever and it left her immediately. And she, was immediate, she immediately arose. So again, it wasn't a, a wait and see, but immediately it took effect. And the rebuking of the fever um, just all the more shows his, his power and authority over sickness. And Jesus isn't outright declaring his deity here. He's not saying, I'm God and I have this power and this authority and that's why I'm casting out this sickness. That's exactly what this displays. That's what it shows. It shows his, his divine nature, his deity. And I think this is just a, another place that we can point to and say, Jesus is more than just a prophet, right? He is divine in nature. I remember I was working closely alongside of a, a Jehovah's Witness uh, elder for several years, five years. And there was one specific time where he was talking to the, the students that we were over and he said, nowhere in the Bible does it say that Jesus is God. And yeah, and um, I, I sat there and I was trying to think of like an exact phrasing that he used, but I, I couldn't come up with anything. I didn't say anything in that moment, in that time. It was a complete fail as a Christian. So let me put you guys to the test. What should have I said to him? How does uh, the Bible express Jesus claiming to be God? Yes. Yeah, 8.58, I think. Yep. Yeah, there are a number of places to go to. Yes. <clears throat> Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah, in John 5, John 8, John 10, each of those places, Jesus says that he is the Son of God. And the Pharisees, they knew exactly what that meant. <coughs> and they responded just like that. They wanted to, to stone him because they understood. And if we're going to understand the Bible as the original authors and original recipients did, as we should in Bible study, um, then we should see, okay, well, that's what they thought. And that's what we should think, too, that he wasn't just... Yeah, it was a claim to deity. So if he's, if he's not God, yes, it's blasphemy. Mm-hmm. Yep. Amen. Yes, Jerry. Okay. Uh-huh. 
Yep. Yeah, and I think that's the same thing we see back in, in 2.1, that when he had come into Capernaum several days after, it was heard that he was at home. So I think Capernaum was understood to be his hometown, even though he was from Nazareth. He was out of Egypt and from Nazareth, but Capernaum was his home base for ministry. All right. Yes, Jim. And it's a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks after a sign, right? And as we mentioned last week, Matthew 11 actually talks about Capernaum and, um, oh, what other city? Chorazin. Yeah, Chorazin. And, and there's something else just right there north of Capernaum. Um, and he says, huh? Bethsaida. Yeah, Chorazin and Bethsaida. And then it was... Um, I'm not going to go find it. But he says that um, those cities are, are worse off for having those miracles performed in them, right? They had that extra exposure to the light. So it's going to be better off for Sodom and Gomorrah or for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for those uh, four cities, uh, which I cannot remember right now, in the day of judgment. Um, so yes, even though we're living in this time that says, yeah, if only God would show himself to me, that would just multiply their, their judgment in the end, really. Amen. Yep. Yeah, it's completely ignoring the whole spiritual aspect of salvation, that we are spiritually blinded, that the fall is a, a complete fall. It doesn't just affect our, our bodies. It's not just that we, we grow old and die, but our, our spirit, our soul, we are, we're not neutral people, right? We are enemies of God, and we need to be reformed and regenerated and made into new creatures and able, in order to be able to uh, see and embrace the truth of the gospel. <laughs> yeah, show us a sign. <laughs> yeah, what ignorance, huh? Yeah, and just selfishness of the human heart. Signs don't, I mean, he showed, he showed the signs to show us the four beasts, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not a matter of seeing, it's a matter of will and the heart and repentance. Yeah. And what arrogance for us as created beings to stand back and say, well, God didn't reveal himself enough to me. Um, <laughs> that, that's just adding blasphemy to blasphemy. Yeah. Absolute arrogance. All right. Um, so back to Simon's mother-in-law. Some suggest that Jesus, in healing Simon's mother-in-law, had selfish motives, um, that he just wanted to be served. Because it says afterwards in verse 32 uh, that she got up and, and 
served them. Oh, 31. Yeah, she waited on them. What's wrong with this, this understanding? What's wrong with this thinking? Yeah. Well, that's why Jesus healed the woman. <clears throat> that's why he healed her, so that she could fulfill her noble calling. I don't think so. <laughs> okay. Why not? Yeah. Good. Amen. And in addition to that, Jesus isn't selfish, right? Not at all. Again, what does Mark 10.45 say? Amen. That was why Jesus came, right? Not to be served. Very clearly. Um, and so to, to try to pin that on Jesus is uh, it's just foolishness. And not to mention all the other miracles that he did that proves that same point that he came not to be served but to serve. You would have to find some way to, to twist those and uh, put a, a selfish motive on, on all of those miracles that he performed as well. And as we mentioned, Jesus made this bread out of nothing, right? He turned water into wine. Why does he need to heal somebody else in order for them to serve him? Uh, if he wanted to, he, he didn't need to, to heal her in order to do that. This whole understanding, this accusation that Jesus had selfish motives in healing Peter's mother-in-law, it starts with a very very poor presuppositions about Jesus, um, that Jesus isn't God or that God is somehow like us and he has these selfish motives, selfish desires that we have. Uh, Jesus is God and God is nothing like us, right? Um, we need to start with those presuppositions and then we can come to this text and we can see uh, Jesus healed her because he cared for her, because he wanted to um, not be served, but to to love on her and to show people who he was by this um, miraculous act. Um, let's look at Mark 8.15 real quick. This is a parallel passage. <clears throat> or Matthew, sorry. Matthew 8.15. And here, I want you to see if you can spot the difference of how Jesus, of what he says about this account. It says that he touched her hand, Peter's mother-in-law, and the fever left her, and she got up and waited on him. And back in Mark, it says that he came to her and raised her up and taking her by the hand, the fever left her and she waited on them. What's the difference between Mark's account and Matthew's account? Did you pick up on it? Yeah, not too much. It's subtle. All right, one more time from Matthew. Uh, what is it, 8.15? Yeah, 8.15. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and waited on him. All right, and Mark, one more time. He came to her and he raised her up, taking her by the hand. The fever left her and she waited on them. Yes. Matthew, she waited on Jesus. Mark, she waited on them. Remind me, what's the... 
the audience of Matthew versus Mark? Who are they writing to, and what is their their purpose in writing? Mark is to the Romans. Yes. And Matthew is to the Jews. Yep, to the Jews, right? Matthew writing to the Jews, to the Hebrew people, saying Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the King. He is here, right? That's why she got up and waited on him, because he is a king, and he deserves to be waited on. Mark, writing to the Romans, as you say, uh, he is highlighting the point that Jesus is the suffering servant, and she got up and she waited on them, which is completely okay, because she did apparently wait on them. Mark, or Matthew, rather, just wanted to highlight the point that she was waiting on him. She was waiting on the king. And so these subtle differences in the text, people will point out and say, well, there's a contradiction in Scripture. The completely wrong presupposition, neglecting to realize that these are different authors that are writing to different people with a different purpose in mind. Um, That's just one place where we can see these supposed contradictions and reconcile them fairly easily. No. No. Yeah. 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 Even if she got up and went and fed the chickens, that's not saying that she didn't serve them. So that that could still be reconciled, but yeah. yeah to say that she got up and she did not serve them versus she did serve them. Yeah. 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 Uh, There are people who are attacking the Bible all the time. We just need to be on guard and be ready to give a defense for the hope that we have within us. Uh, Sam. And that, my friends, is why we should homeschool our kids. Critical thinking, uh, logical reasoning. It's good. <laughs> yeah, a, li- a little bit. <laughs> How much of that did you get in public school, though? Uh, yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> All right. Um, let's see. What is significant about when Jesus did this? Anybody pick up on the, the, re- the important time reference that we have? about when Jesus came and healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Anybody catch that? All right, let's go back to verse 21. Verse 21 says that they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And then down in verse 28, um, after casting out this demon... It says, immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district in Galilee. And immediately, in verse 29, immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So it's on the Sabbath. 
It was on the Sabbath. Good job. Good catch. So on the Sabbath, he went in uh, and healed Peter's mother-in-law, which is uh, a big no-no in, in later chapters. We'll see, even just looking down into, if you glance down in 2.24, this is outside of Capernaum, by the way, so they, he didn't have the same acceptance here as he did in Capernaum. In 2.24, it says, the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And again, down in 3.2, it says that they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So he didn't have that same response, that same reaction when he healed Peter's mother-in-law on the Sabbath in Capernaum. It was um, more accepted or at least less, um, yeah, it was less attacked by the, the Jewish parties there in Capernaum where he was more accepted. All right, any other thoughts or questions, comments on the healing of Simon's mother-in-law? All right. Well, moving on to verses 32 to 34, we see some more miraculous healings. Um, It says in verse 32 of Mark 1, When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. So we have another reference to time in these verses. What's significant about when these people were brought to Jesus? Do you guys pick up on that? Verses 32 to 34. Yeah, what does that mean? After the sunset. Why is that important? It's the next day. Yeah, it's the next day, according to Jewish thought, right? The Sabbath started Friday night at, at sundown and went through Saturday night at sundown. And when the sun set, it's no longer Sabbath, which means that they are permitted by the law and the Jewish customs to, to do these different things. It was taken very seriously to uh, observe and to remember the Sabbath, right? It's a fourth commandment. Uh, they need to remember it and to, to keep it holy. Remember back in Exodus 20, verse 10, it says, The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male, your female servant, your cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you. It was taken very seriously. And in Numbers 15, there was a man who went out and he gathered wood on the Sabbath, and he was killed for breaking the Sabbath. And so it's something that people took extremely seriously. And uh, not only did they take it seriously for, for good reason, because God had put this law into place, but I think they went a little bit too far because of the extra rules and regulations that the scribes and Pharisees put in place. They saw this, this guardrail that, that God had put up, this fence, so to speak, and they said, well, let's move five, ten feet back from that fence. Let's put up another guardrail. Let's put up another fence. Let's add some more laws to God's laws so that we don't accidentally step over into that boundary that is forbidden. Let's not even tempt ourselves to cross that fence. And so they started adding laws to laws. um, And they were very serious about that. We can see that just in this this passage, that they waited until sundown to come to Jesus. And so synagogue service would go until about noon. Noon it would let out. And at that time, Jesus went to Peter's house and healed his mother-in-law. And then 
she got up and waited on them. Seems like they just hung out for a little while until evening. Evening time came, and all these people get brought to Jesus uh, just continually. That's what that word brought is, is saying. It's in the imperfect tense, so that they were literally coming nonstop, bringing people to Jesus that he might heal them. Um, and this was Jesus' day, just all day, healing people um, after going to the, uh, the synagogue and casting out this demon. And we see that while Jesus' miraculous work had temporary benefits, that these people were healed, it also pointed to his eternal power and eternal authority. Again, Mark's uh, common theme. He wants to show Jesus had this authority. Now, Jesus isn't a socialist, right? He's not there to just give free health care to all these people. And that's not why he, he went to Capernaum, so he could just be the, the city doctor and have people bring brought to him continually and heal them. Uh, he does care for people, and he is there to serve people. However, he is highlighting the fact that he is the, the messianic king that John the Baptist had foretold, right? He is there as the savior of the world. He is ushering the kingdom. He's not just there as some socialist doctor, right? We need to, to recognize that. Then we see that the demons knew who Jesus was, but they weren't permitted to speak up. So again, everybody else up until Mark 8, they don't really know who Jesus is. They don't acknowledge him as king, as Lord, but the demons, they know. And Jesus tells them, you guys need to be quiet, right? Um, they can't do anything on their own authority, on their own power. They need God to permit them to have this, this power to, to do anything. What book in Scripture do we look to that shows us that most clearly? That Satan and his demons need uh, authority from God to do stuff. Job. Yeah, Job, right? Where, where Satan is roaming on the earth and he needs to ask God for permission to, to touch Job. And he has certain parameters and things that he is not able to do. Uh, we also see that here. We saw that back in verses 23 to 28 when this man was cast out in the synagogue. And we see it in chapter 5 with Legion that even the demonic powers, they are subject to the divine authority and, and sovereignty of God. Um, it's um, something that people will often struggle with to, to reconcile the existence of God and the problem of evil in this world, and how those two things can be um, true at the same time. But it's an even greater problem to think about a God who is oblivious to this evil, that this stuff is going on without God's permission, without God's approval, if Satan and his demons are just acting on their own authority, on their own strength, um, without God being able to have any say, any interaction, I think that's a, a much greater problem than the problem of evil. Um, we do see, however, here that the, the demons aren't permitted to declare the, the deity of Jesus, right? And Jesus tells them, you guys be quiet. You guys just up really is what he tells them. Um, we saw that back in uh, 25, I think, where he tells them to, to be quiet. And uh, we can kind of speculate as to why he, he might have done this. I think it's a, a really good answer to say that, well, his hour had not yet come. It wasn't his time to, to go to the cross yet. And uh, he has a, a plan for what he's going to do in his timing, and his hour had not yet come. We could say that he didn't want to add to the confusion of having the, the truth of the gospel uttered by an evil spirit 
I'm sure you can imagine that would be confusing for these people who are already trying to figure out who Jesus is. Is he the Messiah? Is he John the Baptist? Is he another prophet? And then you have a demon saying, oh yeah, he's the Messiah. He's the Messiah. Uh, that would definitely be a little bit more confusing than, than otherwise, right? Uh, perhaps uh, he just didn't want this glorious truth being uttered by a demon. Uh, an infinitely more holy response to the same disdain that Will Smith had for uh, Chris Rock, right? Uttering his wife's name. Maybe Jesus just says, no, you, you can keep my name out of your mouth, you, you wicked, evil demon. Uh, that's not something that you are permitted to say, right? Yes, Jim. Yeah. Yeah. Satan is a liar. He's a father of lies. So, yeah. Doesn't add any value whatsoever. But yeah, I think all of that's um, just speculation. I think those are good reasons why Jesus told him not to do. I don't think it's just one of those reasons, but I think we can kind of group those together and say that. Um, these are perhaps some reasons why Jesus told the demons to be quiet. Uh, listen to this quote from J. Mack. He says, As the Savior of the world, the Messiah had to be able to rescue souls from both sin and Satan. As a resurrection and the life, in John eleven twenty five, he had the power over both the physical and spiritual effects of the curse. As the Redeemer, he had to be able to redeem both the soul that was lost and the body that was decaying, Romans eight twenty three. And Jesus consistently demonstrated necessary heavenly might by repeatedly casting out demons and healing diseases to exhibit his total dominion over both the spiritual and the physical realms, devastated by sin. By those miracles, he demonstrated that he possessed the power to impart eternal life to souls and bodies, fitting them for resurrected glory in heaven. So, again, our... We are holistic beings who have fallen fully into sin. That sin has affected the, the spiritual realm as well as the physical realm. And Jesus exercised and demonstrated his power over both the physical and the spiritual in casting out demons and healing the, the sick and the diseased who were brought to him. So I think that's pretty cool. I think it's a good quote from John MacArthur there. Any thoughts or questions on that section, these other miraculous healings by Jesus, 32 to 34. Yeah. He was preaching before, right? Yeah, remember back in 14 and 15, that's kind of the, the summary of Jesus' ministry, it says that now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. I don't know. I would imagine... Again, just speculating. I would imagine that it was a mix of healing and preaching and, and caring and ministering to them and loving on them and uh, just interacting with them and, hey, hey, my name's Jesus and, and tell me about yourself, even though he knows and uh, just loving on them, uh, but also preaching. And that's what we do when we go up and we 
set booths out this last year. We did balloons. You know, we're making balloons, but at the same time, we're, we're preaching Christ to them. Um, so, hey, tell me about Jesus. What do you believe about Jesus? Who is he? And well, let me tell you what, what he says. He says that before Abraham was, I am. And he says that uh, apart from me, you're going to die in your sins. And all the while, we're, we're making balloons or we're doing the goofy little games that we do or whatever. I'm sure that that's a lot of what Jesus was doing. It was preaching and, and healing simultaneously. Yes. He's not stretching legs. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's a declaration of who he is yeah. and the fact that he's there. Yeah, Jim. I think that's an example to us. Jesus didn't just do good works, but he did preach the gospel. And I hear a lot of Christians say, well, I'll just be a good neighbor, I'll be a good example, and people will believe by my works, by mine. Yeah, it's not sufficient. That lame little quip, preach your gospel, and if necessary, use words, uh, is in fact lame. <laughs> uh, Brittany was telling me that she read a commentary this week, and John MacArthur used that word, lame. <laughs> she thought that was pretty funny that he used that word, uh, talking about the, the lion being out in the road, and how the, the lazy man will make lame excuses. Well, I can't, I can't go out there. Uh, there's a lion out there, just being a sluggard. Uh, but that truly is a, a lame excuse for evangelism to say, I'm just going gonna, gonna to live a godly life and hope that somebody will come up and ask me about who Jesus is, ask me about what's different about me. Um, it's absolutely true that if we're preaching the gospel and then we're going out and we're living like a, a heathen, that's going to that's gonna speak volumes, right? Um, it's going to speak more loudly than our words. And people are going to think, well, what a hypocrite. I don't want to embrace that kind of faith or that kind of religion. But we can't expect our lifestyle to preach louder than our words are going to preach or to somehow uh, supplant our requirement to, to go out and to be ambassadors for the gospel. That's a, a ministry of reconciliation that's been entrusted to us that we can't neglect. Good point. Mm-hmm. Typically, we've always, yes, it's been typical of Christians throughout history. They're, they're the ones that set up schools, they're the ones that 
purpose was purely to contradict the preaching of the gospel, which was being done in schools. Yeah, yeah establishing the schools and the hospitals, that was a, an outflow of the gospel love that they had, right? Part of his nature. It's an oxymoron. <laughs> Good. Yeah, James in James 2, starting verse 14, he says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? A faith that doesn't work? Uh, no. If a brother or sister is without clothing or in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace and be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. A uh, verse that you will definitely encounter if you engage in any evangelism here in Utah, and it will be twisted and taken out of context. You need to remind them um, that it is a faith that works, not works plus faith. Sam, do you have something? Yes. Yeah, Jesus never uh, talked to them about their faith. In fact, we'll get to, at one point, uh, Mark 9, where this man says, I believe, but help my unbelief. Uh, next week, perhaps, or the week after, we'll cover both of those accounts of the, the leper and this man who are lowered down through the roof. And uh, yeah, it's their, their faith that Jesus points to, not anything they've done, not any of their, their works. Um, if righteousness could come through the law, then Christ died for nothing, right? All right, good. Any other final thoughts or questions? I will save our next couple of slides talking about Jesus praying for, for next week. We'll take a look at Jesus' prayer life. I did this week. Um, I thought that we were going to get there and talk about Jesus praying. And one thing that I want to talk about next week is how uh, we don't have to pray exactly in the way that Jesus prayed, in the sense that he got up early in the morning and he went out and he was alone. 
uh, all that. But it is good to have some kind of set routine for our prayer, some kind of plan for our prayer. And I brought these before and, and showed you, but I brought them again, these little uh, prayer requests, 100 weekly prayer requests. And you can write down nine prayer requests for every day. Uh, then they have nine more for just Mondays and Thursdays, for Tuesdays and Fridays, Wednesdays and Saturdays, some for Sundays, some for every day, um, and special requests. And I have several of those up here. If you guys would like to take those and get started on that this week, uh, perhaps that will help you in your preparation of studying Jesus and his prayer life next week. And uh, to, if you haven't already established some sort of routine when it comes to your prayer life, which is important. It doesn't have to be the same routine that Jesus followed, but it is good to have a routine. So that's what we'll be doing next week. And maybe the leper and the man lowered through the roof. But for now, let's pray and go in fellowship. God, thank you again for your word, for your people. Thank you for time to, to spend uh, just fellowshipping with, with these people in this place and uh, we pray that you would be honored and glorified and lifted up today and in our hearts and uh, God we are so unworthy to to be able to call you God and uh, thank you for the fact that you have saved us that you didn't come to be served but to serve that you gave your life as a ransom for many as a ransom for us uh, what a blessing God help us to take that good news and to share it with others not just to bank on our lifestyle or people asking us to, to give an answer for the hope that we have within us, but that we, will, we would actively go out and share the good news of your faith, of, of, your, of your word, and our faith in, in you. God, we, we love you and praise you. Amen.